Let me say a prayer for us, and we will kind of dive right into this study. I'm really excited about this section of the book of Romans. Heavenly Father, thank you that we live in a country where we're free to gather. I pray that you would be with our leaders and that you would turn their hearts to you, that this nation might be a beacon for freedom and justice in the world, and that your name might be lifted up. We thank you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Romans. And if you remember, I'm going to go ahead and show you a map here. If you remember the book of Romans, it's a letter. It's a letter to a church in the city of Rome. Rome was the biggest, most powerful city in the world at this time. Paul hasn't been there. He's gotten a mission from God. He's an apostle, meaning an ambassador, if you will, from God. And he is in this Greek city of Corinth, right here on the map. And he's heard that there is a group of believers over here in Rome, in Italy. Rome is the literally the center of the world at this time. This map that I'm showing you shows the extent of the power of the Roman Empire through various stages. But essentially, Rome is controlling the world, and they have also made the world relatively peaceful. The reason, I think, one of the reasons God brought the gospel into the world at this time is because it could spread like wildfire. And even as the Roman Empire and the Jews tried to stop it, it's sort of like trying to put out a fire and the sparks start, start fires all around it. That's kind of what happened with Christianity. And so the Apostle Paul has been on these journeys where he's going from village to village and city to city, and he's bringing this good news of the gospel. Well, he's heard about the Christians in Rome. He hasn't been there, but he decided, I want to write you a letter, and I want to make sure that you have heard the gospel the good news about Jesus Christ. And that's what this book of Romans, that's what this long letter is about. In our last lesson, I'm going to summarize it in Romans chapter 1. He said, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, because I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes or who trusts in Christ, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is completely by faith. I'm going to translate that a little differently. Completely by faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So this is the thesis, if you will, the main point of this whole letter, and he kind of gets it out right up front. He said, I'm not ashamed to tell you about the gospel because it's the power that is going to rescue. The word save in Greek means also means rescue. Like that word was not a religious word. Matter of fact, none of these words were religious words at the time. The word save is kind of like you're drowning and somebody throws you one of those life preservers. That's save. He's saying, this is the power to rescue you, to save you from drowning, if you will. So this is what Paul says about the gospel. In our last lesson, I want to repeat one idea. The gospel, that word, means good news. It's just an announcement of good news. 
We talked about uh, this quite a bit in our last lesson, but basically, if you have some event that happens that is like, wow, this is the best thing that ever happened. I mean, I remember when they came out with dark chocolate Reese's peanut butter cups. That was good news for me. Dark chocolate fan, that's gospel, man. That's gospel right there. So the word gospel means good news. And so the gospel is a world-altering, life-changing event that happened. And this is Paul, this is us still today, telling the good news about this life-changing event that happened. What was that event? The event was the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God on the cross bearing our sins, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead as the down payment, if you will, for our eternal life. That event, if you will, is the good news. And so that's what gospel means. Every time you hear gospel, I want you to think about, oh, that's announcing this cataclysmic, world-changing event that happened. So that was where we left last time. Now, this is going to seem like an interesting little turn to you because you're probably thinking, oh, well, after you said that, you're probably next going to tell me how much God loves me. No, that's not what happens next. And it's, it's really profoundly true, and it's really profoundly a part of the gospel, the way Paul wants to present this. He says the gospel is a world-altering, life-changing event. And he's going to answer the question, why should I care? I mean, if you think about it, we talked last time about him saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Think about what he's saying. Hey, guys, there's this Jewish carpenter who was crucified in Judea, in Israel, and he was raised from the dead, and that's going to change your life. Well, that's not immediately obvious to people that, well, right, it's going to change my life. Why? I think people today ask that same question. Why is that a life-changing event? Paul is going to answer that. Here's the next verse, verse 18. Paul immediately says this, the wrath of God is being revealed, not will be revealed, not is coming, is now being poured out, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made in the world so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This is a profound passage. I mean, he just sort of hits you right between the eyes. And he says, there is a righteousness, a justice, a way of reconciliation that is being made known through this good news of this event. 
And you might say, well, why, why do I need that? He says, because the wrath of God is being poured out against our godlessness and our wickedness. So let's camp out on that for just a minute because I want to talk about this idea of wrath. We don't talk about it very much, but it's actually essential to understanding the significance of what Jesus Christ did. We think the word wrath, if you just use that word, people would think, oh, you are so angry, you have lost control. You think about rage. You think about losing control of your emotions. Think about road rage, right? It's like, I don't know what happened to me. I just got so angry. I was on the Hefner Parkway, and this person cut me off, and I don't know what came over me, officer. I just went ballistic. All right, I mean, that's kind of what we think about as wrath. That's not what wrath is in the Bible. God doesn't lose control. He doesn't get just irrationally angry and go, oh, I don't know what came over me. I just, I can't believe I did that. I just got, I just lost my mind out of anger. That's not what wrath is. Let me tell you what wrath is. I have a friend um, who had a son, and this son became really attached to a teacher in high school. Actually, you're going to hear this story a lot of places. This one just happens to be personal to me. But you can pick up the newspaper and you can read these kinds of stories. And so her son became really attached to this teacher, and she thought, this teacher is going to be a great mentor, going to help my son stay on track. And sure enough, it kind of seemed that way. The teacher took the young man under his wing and kind of brought him along. Well, after a year or so, she realized that he's become an addict, and he became an addict to opiates through the influence of this teacher, and that this teacher, it turns out, is a dealer and brought the young man along and got him hooked on the drugs, and now he was dealing drugs. Now, you can imagine what my friend thought about this. She was heartbroken, but she was furious at the wrongness of this, at the just injustice of this, at the, that's just not right. That's what the wrath of God is like. The wrath of God is God looking at injustice and just wrongness, what we call sin in the world, and being angry at sin, sin that destroys lives, sin that leads to death. God is justifiably angry. If I looked at this woman, she was justifiably angry. That's what wrath is. It's God looking at sin and looking at all of his creation and seeing it warped and bent and people being destroyed by sin. I want you to think about it. When Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb, you may or may not know this story, but Lazarus has died, and Jesus comes, and he's in the tomb. And you remember what happens? He looks at the tomb, and he weeps. Why does he weep? Because he's actually, I'll tell you the end of the story, he says, Lazarus, come out, and he brings him back from the dead. But then why would you cry? Why would you weep? Why would you be... And the Greek word there says he was 
angry and he was stirred up. He was in turmoil, knowing, even knowing that he was going to bring him back from death. Why is he weeping? Why is he in turmoil? Because he knows this is not the way this world was created to be. This is the effect of sin destroying my creation. That's the wrath of God. The wrath of God at sin that so seeps in and destroys us. That's what wrath is. Tim Keller kind of points it out this way. He says, Paul's confidence, joy, and passion for the gospel, for this good news, rest on the assumption that all human beings are, apart from this good news, under God's wrath. If you don't understand or believe in the wrath of God, the gospel will not thrill you, it will not empower you, it will not move you. In other words, a gospel, Jesus Christ on the cross, in the grave, and raised without the understanding that sin will be destroyed. And if we are enmeshed and immersed in sin, we will be destroyed that we too are in rebellion against God, if we don't understand that, there is no way that this good news is really good news to us. It will not thrill, empower, or move us. If you go back to the passage, look at what it says. It says, we can know that there is a God, and yet we exchanged, and I want you to watch this word. You're going to see this word quite a bit exchanging the glory of God for images, idolatry. This whole passage in Romans is going to talk a lot about idolatry. And I know you're going to say, idolatry? Yeah, that's one of those old religious words. We don't do that anymore. We don't worship shrines or pictures. Really? When I was a young man, uh, I had a job. When I was 12 years old, Air Force Base, worked at the base commissary, and we would carry out the bags of groceries for people. And people would tip us to do it. I mean, you worked for tips, right? It's the only job you can get when you're 12 years old. But if you got a George, that's what we called it. This is a $1 bill. It's got a picture of a guy on it. And his name is George. Oh, that was a big, big tip in those days. I mean, I know that dates me. Right now, this and about $5 more will get you a latte at Starbucks. I understand that. But it was a big deal to me. But we still worship the image of people, don't we? Don't get me started about the whole triangle and the eye on the back. That's another lesson, another time. I'm, that's a whole different deal. But we have exchanged the glory of the Creator to worship created things, whether it's fame or money or pleasure or power, etc. And so what Keller is saying is if we don't understand that we are in rebellion against God who made this, and we've said, no, thank you, you are not going to be my Lord, I will be my Lord, or I am going to go worship created things. If we don't understand that, then this good news, it's not that good news. And I think that's part of why Christianity, we sometimes talk about cheap grace, meaning, oh, the grace of God. Jesus died on the cross to bear my sins, raised from the dead, so I get to go to heaven. Great. Let me take that card, put it in my wallet. I'll see you when I die. I mean, that's cheap grace, right? It's fire insurance in the Christian language. It's like, hey, you just make sure I don't go to hell. I just want to go to heaven. 
I'll see you when I die, right? In, in between time, leave me alone, right? This understanding of the good news, it's only good news when we realize we are desperately in need of that. This is probably a good place just to pause for a second because I want to tell you about the word sin. I know, it's the Christian four-letter word, right? We don't talk about sin very much. Sin is effectively not being who God created us to be, saying, yeah, God, I know that you say that's the way we should live. I'm going to live this way. I'm going to worship something else. Sin in the Bible, this is something that we'll see over and over throughout the New Testament, but you'll see it in Romans. Sin is talked about in two ways. You probably think of sin as a transaction. In other words, I did something I wasn't supposed to do, or I didn't do something I was supposed to do, right? Think about household chores, many sins in my household that I have committed. In other words, I didn't do something I was supposed to do, or I did something I wasn't supposed to. Well, that's a way of understanding a transgression, a sin. Those words are all used in your New Testament. But there's a more profound sense that's captured here in Romans chapter 1. Sin is not just an action or the failure to act in a proper way. It's a condition. It's a status that we have. It's a condition of being in rebellion against the king. And so the wrath of God is simply the justifiable anger of us distorting God's creation and being in a situation where we are, I'll show you the list of things that we do in a minute, the sins that we commit. So sins are actions, but they're also a situation in which we are in. So let's move on. You'll see this uh, play itself out. This is an interesting commentary by Doug Moo on this passage, this idea about understanding the wrath of God. It's something we don't talk about much, but he makes a good point. He says, perhaps a greater danger to the church is the persistent tendency in the midst of the awakened interest in spirituality to view God as a purely benign being. If God exists, so many people seem to reason, then he must be a good God who has our interests at heart. Surely he could never be angry with us or do anything that might inconvenience us. This view of God is far from the biblical view of a holy and just or righteous God whose very nature demands that he react negatively to sin. Ultimately, a failure to appreciate the reality of God's holiness and its implication, which is wrath against sin, warps our understanding of the Christian faith. And that's true. And that's why in the book of Romans, as Paul begins to explain the good news of the gospel, he begins with, we are all under a death sentence, if you will. We are all in rebellion against God. He's going to make his case in the next few passages that I'm going to show you. I want you to think about this like a court case is about to happen. He's basically announced a verdict. He says, you guys are all under God's wrath. All of humanity is. And you say, really? Well, make your case, Paul. And that's really what he does in 118 through 320 is a case to make his point like a prosecuting attorney might do. N.T. Wright makes, puts it this way, and he gets back to this idea of idolatry. Idolatry shows up in a lot of ways. He says, the point is this, if you exchange 
God. And you're going to see that word exchange quite a bit in this passage. For an idol, you will exchange your genuine humanity for a distorted version which will do you no good whatsoever. In other words, we pursue an image of humanity. We pursue fame, fortune, whatever it is we think will make us happy, fulfilled, secure. And what he's saying is those are idols that we follow, and it's a distorted vision of humanity. It's like sin. Marty says this so well, our senior pastor, Marty Grubbs, that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will make you pay more than you want to pay, and it will make you stay longer than you wanted to stay. In other words, the promises of sin are lies. And when we follow that, we have a distorted view of humanity. Well, let's look at uh, this next passage. He said, therefore, since we all know God in some sense, but we have turned away and we have made a trade we have exchanged. And so I want you to think about Paul's a prosecuting attorney is going to make three points. He's going to talk, first of all, about, well, what about just the average person that doesn't know the Bible, that doesn't know anything about God? He said, you can look at creation and know that there is a God, that there is something bigger than what we are. I saw a study this morning, by the way, I was reading about it, that uh, psychologists have done studies and found it to be true that uh, the more we lie, the better we get at it. I know, we needed to spend a lot of money to find that out, because you didn't know that, did you? <laughs> and the more we lie, it affects us, it changes us. And so, there is written inside all of us, and this is an interesting point, in every culture, in all times, people lie, but everybody knows there's an unrightness about it. There's something wrong with this. There is no culture that normalizes lying. Now, there are cultures that say, oh, you should lie to people that aren't in our clan or aren't in our tribe. You can lie to people outside, but there's not a single person, not a single group of people in all of the history of humanity that hasn't known that, you know what, when you look mom in the eye and you lie to her, that's a bad thing. Something bad is about to happen to you. It seems to be wired into us, doesn't it? And that's what Paul is saying, is that there is enough knowledge wired into all of us to know that there's something out there. And yet, here's his, here's his accusation. He says, but God gave them over in their sinful desires to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. In other words, because they rejected God and began to worship other things, creation instead of the creator, he gave them over. This is a, a verb uh, that you're going to see also. They exchanged the truth of God and worshiped created things rather than the creator. And so God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women, were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not consider it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. 
Every time I read this, I'm convicted. Look at this. Greed, depravity, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do them, but also approve of those who practice them. So Paul is a prosecuting attorney, and he says, look at everybody out there. You know enough to know that those things are not right. And the fact that you know them and you do them means you have exchanged the glory of God for some other pursuit, some other idol that you will pursue. That's his first point, and that's true for all of humanity. All of us have pursued these things. It's really interesting, that little verb, it's one verb in Greek, God gave them over, is a judicial word. It's sort of like, it's used in uh, other Greek texts to mean the judge has said you're guilty, and so you are given into the custody of the constable or the police, and they haul you away. That's that word. He gave you over. He said, you are guilty, and so lead them away to prison. That's the word. You've been remanded into the custody of the jailer, if you will. That's what it's saying, is because we made this trade and we turned our back on God, he gave us over to be led away in chains, chains of our own making. Oscar Wilde, not necessarily a great theologian or great guy, but he very clever. He said this, when the gods desire to punish us, they answer our prayers. There's a little bit of truth in that here. It said we exchanged the glory of God and we became futile in our thinking. We became darkened in our understanding. We became consumed with sin. And God said, let it run its course. It's as though when God wants to punish us, he lets us have what we want. So his first issue is all of us know enough to know better than the things we talked about. And he casts a wide net, doesn't he? Paul said, let me go back to that slide for a second. Paul said in another passage, talking about himself, he said, I am the chief of sinners. And I will tell you that in this room, I am the chief of sinners in that. I don't think there are any of us that can look at that list and say, nope, nothing on there applies to me. Paul says, no, every one of us is guilty, aren't we? Now, I realize when we get to this passage, by the way, this is one of the passages that is used and it's just bandied about on the internet, just ad nauseum, but about the idea of homosexuality. And so I want to give you an idea here, uh, just a quote from Tim Keller commenting on this, because one of the illustrations that Paul uses, and it's one of the illustrations. I mean, we just looked at that list and every one of us said, yep, that's me, that's me, that's me. But he uses an illustration of homosexuality, homosexual acts. Keller says this, the Bible is clear, both in the Old and New Testaments, that active homosexual sex as a settled, unrepentant pattern of behavior is indicative of an attitude of rejection of Jesus' lordship. Which, by the way, that's true for everything in that list. 
whether it be greed or gossip or slander or malice or all of those things, so many of which apply to me, that is a sign of idolatry. What do I mean when I say idolatry? Of a rejection of Jesus' rightful lordship over this creation and over my life. But he says, this is the same thing. It leaves people outside his kingdom, though never outside his reach. And you're going to see that powerfully come into play here. Is The good news is this. Wherever you saw yourself in that list, again, I'm putting up this passage, whether it's envy or strife, if, if murder is it, would you check in with security after this? But you get my point. There's nothing... Up there and you go, wow, murder and malice, gossip and slander. Yes, all of those things are ways of rejecting Jesus' lordship over this creation in our life. Those are the things that bring the wrath of God because we have so distorted the image of God in our lives. And so we are all guilty. And that's his point. You're all guilty. But some of us are going to say this. He goes on to his second point, and he says, but some of you say, I'm a moral person. I agree with you, Paul. Those heathens, those people that don't know any better, they should at least know there's a God. They at least know that lying to your mom is not a good idea, and yet they do it anyway. Absolutely, wrath of God should rest upon them. In fact, whatever sin I don't have, I usually go, oh, people that have that sin? Oh, that's really bad, right? And so we would make an objection. And so Paul answers the objection. The objection is this, wait a minute, Your Honor. I'm a moral person. I have a moral code. I'm a, quote, good person. I'm a good old boy. I'm a good guy. I have a good heart. Bless your heart. Have you heard these phrases? Those are ways of saying, hey, I'm a moral person. I do good stuff. Paul says this. He says, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on somebody else, because at whatever point you pass judgment on the other, you condemn yourself, because you do the same things. Now, there's a passage in the Bible that's, in my opinion, the most abused passage in the Bible, and that is, judge not that you be not judged. Well, if, if we're not supposed to judge, then Jesus is in deep trouble, because he went around drawing lines and we're not to judge one another, but the Scripture does. In fact, you saw that list, and every one of us was convicted, weren't we? There's judgment in the Scripture. It's judgment that calls us to turn around. It calls us to repentance. But it says this, if you think you're a moral person and you're better than other people and that they should be condemned, but you shouldn't be condemned, I'm talking about most of the secular world in our society. He says, you know what? You do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. There's no doubt those people are guilty. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and you do the same things, do you really think you will escape God's judgment? Do you show contempt for God? He says, because of your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's what Paul is saying. He says, to the moral person... He says, you cannot live up to your own moral standard. I'm taking this outside Christianity. I'm going to talk to anybody out there who thinks, look, I'm not a believer. I'm a good moral person. Here's the Bible's contention. 
you or I cannot live up to our own moral standard. If God judged us by our standard, we'd still fail because we all have double standards. We're all hypocritical. Francis Schaeffer, one of the great theologians in the latter half of the 20th century, he kind of uh, talked about this idea of the invisible tape recorder. And think about this. Suppose that since you were born, you had around your neck on a string an invisible tape recorder, and it recorded everything you've said all through your life. And so you go to heaven, you get to the pearly gates, there's Peter. I don't know why Peter's stuck at the gates, it just is. So you get to the pearly gates, there's Peter, you get to judgment, and God says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll judge you by your own standards. What's your morality? And I tell him my morality, and he says, great, let me take off this tape recorder. I go, what tape recorder? He goes, this little tape recorder that you couldn't see that I've had around your neck. Forget about seeing my thoughts. Forget about seeing the motives of my heart, which God can do. Schaefer said, what if he could just hear everything you and I have said? Would that condemn us? I think it would, wouldn't it? Paul's saying, everybody knows enough to at least know there's a God, and yet we've all failed. And those of us who say, well, I not only know that, I'm at least a morally good person, Paul said, if God judged you by your own moral standard, you would fail. And that is true. You don't know anybody who lives up, including me, I'm not trying to be judgmental here or self-righteous, no one lives up to their own moral standard. There's nobody in this secular world that says, I'm a good person, who lives up to their own moral standard. And so Paul says, that's my second point. If you think you're a good person, you don't even live up to your own standard. I'll tell you what, we'll let God judge you by your standard, and you won't live up to it. That's his point. Well, but then some of us would say, well, yeah, I agree with that. Those secular people who think they're good moral people, they're hypocrites. They don't really do what they believe. They like their friends. They hate their enemies. And yes, those pagans out there, they don't even know the basics and they violate it. But I'm a religious person. I read the Bible. Well, that's Paul's third point. Bad news. He said, now you, in his day, those were the Jews. Who were the chosen people? The Jews. Who had the word of God? The Jews. Who were the good people? The Jews. It were Jews and there were ethnic people. You know what the word Gentiles means? Ethnic people. Not like us. Not pure, unclean, right? That's what it means. There were Jews and there were all the unwashed humanity out there. And so Paul speaks to the Jews and he said, now you, if you call yourself a Jew... And you rely on the law, meaning you have the word of God. You read the word of God. God loves you. God loved Abraham. He loves me too. I get to talk to him every Saturday in synagogue. And you brag about your relationship to God. If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you've been instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, you're a light for those who are in the dark, you're an instructor of the foolish, you're a teacher of infants because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, don't you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who say don't worship idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Here's what Paul is saying. 
The moral person cannot live up to his own moral standard, and the religious person can never live up to God's standard. In other words, whether you know God, you have morality, or you read your Bible, you, you're a Jew, you're God's chosen people, your morality, you can never live up to your own standards, and we can never live up to God's standards. And so what Paul is saying here is that every single one of us, every single one of us is subject to the wrath of God. It's like a prosecuting attorney saying, you're all guilty, and you go, really? I object to that. Make your case, and he says, I will. You've never heard of God? You still lie, you still cheat, you still steal, don't you? Oh, you're a moral person? Well, let me judge you by your standard. And you go, well, actually, I haven't lived up to my standards. Oh, you're a religious person. Well, let me show you what God's standard is. In other words, he's saying none of us have lived up to the standard that's set for us. And here's the interesting thing. John Stott says it really well this way, because we need to be careful as Christians that we don't become smug or self-righteous. He says, we work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. You all can identify with that. There is a righteousness of God. Now, remember, I told you in the last lesson, I'll probably repeat this a lot. The word righteousness, righteous, justice, justification, we use different English words for those. Those are cognates in Greek, but basically it's the same word. So when you see righteousness and justice, same idea. In other words, God has a sense of justice as the creator. You know what? So do I. There is the righteousness of Terry. I have my own sense of justice, don't I? You're going to like my sense of justice if you're a friend of Terry. You're not going to like my sense of justice if you're not a friend of Terry. I mean, seriously, think about our righteousness, our justice. We kind of do what Stott says. We kind of go easy on our friends and the things we like, and, oh, we are really hard on the people that we don't know, them, they. And God is calling us out for that. He says there's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for smugness. In fact, every one of us, Paul makes his case and said every one of us are subject to the wrath, and let me translate that, the justifiable anger of God at distorting his creation, whether it's through gossip or slander or sexual immorality or envy or greed, whatever it may be, we're all guilty of that. That's kind of the bad news part of the gospel, but it's essential to the gospel because without the idea of understanding that I have a problem, then Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, the gospel, the good news about that event, is a solution looking for a problem. Why, if that's good news, don't more people believe that? It's because I don't think I have a problem. It's like, well, gosh, that Jesus was a really nice guy. Appreciate that. See you later. Not coming to your church. Don't have a problem. Paul says no. The wrath of God is justifiably upon all of us. 
That's what the gospel, that's why that's such good news. If I don't understand wrath, then I don't understand the gospel. Here's how he concludes it, chapter 3. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Talking to me now, it kind of hits me home. Are you any better, Terry, than these people? Well, sure, I'm superior to everybody you've been talking about. He says, no, you're not. And I say, you're right. Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And I don't mean just transactional sin. I mean, we are all actively in rebellion against God. Are we pursuing God? Now, I realize some of you say, I am indeed. I repented. I've turned around. I've trust Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But before I did that, where was I headed? I was headed down a road of my own making. I was headed for some idol, basically. He says, as it is written, and this is true, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. And I don't mean worthless in the sense that you are a worthless person because you're going to find out in chapter 5, God thought that you were so worthy that his very son came to die for you. We have become worthless to God. We've become marred images of, the, of God. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20 is Paul being a prosecuting attorney and saying, before I tell you any more about this good news, I need to let you know where you stand with God. Now, let me say one thing here because I know you're all fired up and you're going, yes, that makes perfect sense. And it does make perfect sense. Until I understand my condition before God and I go, oh no, I have rebelled against the creator of the universe. I have done wrong. I mean, I'm convicted by most of the things on that list that Paul said. I'm in deep trouble. Until I realize that, then the good news is not good news. But once I realize that, I go, oh my goodness, Jesus, you are amazing. How could you possibly have made this possible for me to be reconciled to God? That is our posture before God. So I know you're thinking, Terry, we are fired up. We're all going to make signs that say, you are going to hell. Repent now. We're going to stand on the side of the street and tell people, the wrath of God is upon you. Turn around. Death is what is ahead of you. That's true. But the interesting thing about it is, it's not always the right context to present. Now, in this letter, Paul puts it right up front. Matter of fact, you're not going to see love till chapter 5. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It just means that Paul says, Romans, I need you to understand that if you, want to, if you really, really want to understand the good news, the gospel, you need to understand where you came from. And once we do that, as Keller said, now I am moved by the gospel. This good news is good news indeed when I understand who I am and who God is. Does that make sense? That's why Paul starts that way, with the wrath of God. That's not the way we always need to start with everybody. Sometimes we need to hear that. I needed to hear that. I needed somebody in my life, early in my life, who said to me and confronted me and said, Terry, you think you're a good guy, but you're really not. And I argued with him for uh, about 30 seconds, but he had a pretty strong case. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, I think you're right. And that's what Paul did. He has a pretty strong case, doesn't he?
Every one of us can see ourselves up there in that list of things that we have done that have marred the image of God, that have hurt and harmed other people. And so the idea of the gospel without understanding who I really am, it's very hard to understand why Jesus had to die on the cross for me. Otherwise, it's gratuitous. It's cheap grace. And so that's why I think Paul starts with telling us who we really are. He says, look in this mirror, and I got some hard news for you. You've been a rebel against God. And that's what makes the good news really good news. Okay? So I realize that's kind of the bad news part of this, is this idea of uh, nobody is righteous before God, I know that that's not very comforting. I know that it's like, well, am I really supposed to go tell my neighbors that they're under the wrath of God and they're sinners? Not necessarily, but I will say this, and I agree with Keller, that until we understand that, the gospel will really not make a difference in our life. It will be cheap grace until we understand that we have been saved from something and for something. But for me, the first realization was I've been saved from something. I've been saved from a life that leads to death. And we'll see a little later in Romans, Paul's going to say sin leads to death. And that's the only place that road goes. But when you put your trust in Christ, that leads to life. It's two different roads. And we made an exchange, and we made a very bad exchange, didn't we, when we chose to walk toward an idol, whatever that may be in our lives. And so that's what Paul is saying. He said, you need to know where you've come from to understand the good news. And then the rest of Romans is going to be, now let me tell you what you've been saved for. In other words, it's not just fire insurance. I've been saved from a fate. I've been saved for an adventure. And that's what the rest of Romans is going to be about. Next, we're going to talk about the cure for this terminal illness called sin. Remember I said sin is a transaction, but sin is a condition. It's like a terminal illness. I've got to tell you one story, by the way. It's a little off topic, but when you, you think about talking to people about the good news of Jesus Christ, and the best way, by the way, is to say, this is what I was, and this is the good news in my life, and this is how it's changed everything. The good news of Jesus Christ really was life-altering to me. I was this, I'm now that. That's a powerful way to talk about it. It doesn't, is explicit about wrath, but that's really what I'm saying is, I used to be here, I used to be going that direction, and that was a one-way ticket to nowhere. And now, because of that, because of what Jesus Christ did, this is me now. And you may be thinking, well, how are my friends going to take that? It's a really interesting story. I don't know if you remember this uh, comedic duo called Penn and Teller. Uh, Penn, Gillette, big tall guy, Teller, real short guy. And they are comedians. And so Penn, Gillette, the big tall guy, noted atheist, notable atheist. But you can get on the web and look this up, and you'll see him give, tell this story. He said, one time after a show, there was a guy waiting there to talk to me after the show. So the guy came up to me and 
he was very polite, said, I really enjoyed your show. You're so funny. You're a pretty smart guy. He's a really pretty smart guy. He said, and you're a smart guy, and it was really funny, and I really enjoyed your, your show. And by the way, I wanted to give you this. And he said he handed me a Gideon Bible. It was like a New Testament, uh, you know, one of the small pocket-sized Gideon Bibles. Well, that's kind of a bold thing to do because this guy's a noted atheist. But his attitude, and I want you to not not make assumptions about people. Here was his attitude. Here's what he said. He said, you know what? He said, I know there are a lot of atheists out there that say, listen, you Christians, you shouldn't be telling people about your faith. You just keep it private. You stay in your little churches and you don't tell other people. He said, I don't think that. He said, and here's why. He said, if I believed what he believes, in other words, the wrath of God is being poured out against all godlessness and unrighteousness of humanity. He said, if I believe that, which he did, he said, I know that he believed it. If I believe that, how much would you have to hate somebody to not tell them about the gospel? Isn't that interesting? He said, how much would you have to hate somebody to not tell them. He goes on to tell this example. He said, if I'm standing in the road and there's a bus coming and I don't see the bus and I'm about to get run over and there's a guy there and he doesn't say anything, how much must he hate me not to say, hey man, you're like about to get run over by the bus, you know? And even then he said, if I were that guy, I might go, if I don't move, I might reach out and grab you and pull you out of the way. He said, how much must you hate people not to tell them that if I believe that? That's an atheist. I'm not telling you everybody thinks that, but I'm simply saying if that's the truth of our situation, then we need to tell people. We don't necessarily have to take this and say, look, I've got a 2.5 pound Bible. Come over here so I can beat you over the head with this thing, right? No, it's simple enough to say, have I ever told you how I used to be and how this is now? and the difference Jesus Christ made in my life. I really have been convicted by what he said. How much would I have to hate somebody not to tell them that? And so that's our assignment for this week. Seriously, no, not to beat people over the head about the wrath of God. Hey, by the way, the wrath of God is being poured out on you, buddy. Yes, you. Oh, you're my boss, sorry. That's not gonna go well on the appraisal, is it? Okay, but my point is, is that we can all tell our story. And that story should have the gospel in the center, that event, as a life-changing event. And if it's not, turn around, accept it, and go the other direction. Next time, Paul's going to start talking about what we've been saved for and the power that the gospel brings to our life. So this week, you'll have to make do without power, but next week you will be energized. I'll see you then. Thanks. <laughs>